This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome into Bartholomew Town's continuing coverage of the impact of COVID-19 here in Rhode Island. I'm Bill Bartholomew. On this episode, a conversation on the challenges facing the homeless community here in the state with the president and CEO of Crossroads Rhode Island, Karen Centilli. So I'm the president and CEO at Crossroads, and um, for the last two two weeks, literally every minute of every day has been spent on preparation, planning, and and responding um, to the whole COVID nineteen crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, that includes figuring out of our 167 employees who has to return to work, who can work from home who um, who can't work because of childcare and other issues now that schools and daycares are closed. It, it's um, how do we ensure that the hundreds of families in our housing programs are okay and have what they need and the individuals in our housing program and then our shelter. It's just, <laughs> um, it's been, it's been um, nonstop. Yeah. I mean, that's a, a very specific challenge here within, especially with the parameters of what to maintain with this particular virus. There's so much around personal safety and personal hygiene, so to speak, that Mm -hmm. the realistic aspect of that is the homeless community is disproportionately at risk, I suppose. So credit to you and and everyone who was, we actually share a building here. my, My studio is in the same building as House of Hope and there's a Portageon okay. and a, and a pop up yep. sanitation center in our parking lot here that just emerged. So there definitely are some on the ground things happening. But I don't know why. Sure are. Yeah. Can, can you give us sort of a breakdown from Crossroads' perspective of some of the specific things that are, you know, from a from a service perspective to the homeless community? What's happening on on the ground right now? Okay, so yeah, every day we have a call with all of the service providers, partners volunteer organizations, groups that are doing any kind of service to individuals and families experiencing homelessness. And we, uh, it's coordinated through the Coalition for the Homeless, and we have a point person that's on the state's response team for planning. So we have someone um, that, you know, is connecting the needs of the homeless into what the state is planning overall. And every day we're taught, I mean, it started first with, um, you know, sort of crisis things we need right at the moment, like thermometers and and screening tools for uh, people coming into our shelters. And how do we? How should we be changing our shelter admissions policies? And who gets to come in and who gets to stay? And and what happens if someone starts to show symptoms? And and how do we how do we protect the rest of the community um, if there is an out? So it was you know sort of very. Um, real in your face, you know, where are people going? If if now all the libraries and malls and things are closed, where can people go during the day? Where are they going to go to the bathroom? Where can they wash their hands? I mean, just real basic things um, from the perspective of people either living in shelter or outdoors or on the street. And so the whole service community has come together and really trying to work as one to make sure that we're as, you know, effective as we can be together and that we're not duplicating efforts unnecessarily. Um, and, and now, you know, we've been into this for two weeks now. And so now from my perspective, I think the conversation needs to start and, I, and others agree. And we're starting to pivot the conversation more towards, okay, 
housing. Housing is the only solution to homelessness. Um, we have these crisis planning in place. We're planning, you know, in the event that there is a surge in the homeless community. But, gee, if we could just get these people into their own apartments, then wouldn't that be great? They could quarantine or isolate in their own apartments. And um, and congregate shelters wouldn't be um, so problematic. And so um, how can we use this collective energy amongst all the service providers and all the creative problem solving that's happening now to see how we can find more apartments in our community that we can put families and individuals into and get them out of shelter. I feel like there's so many problems that are going to be reassessed or at least reimagined following this crisis. And certainly that's one right there. I mean, assessing housing as a basic need, you know, a fundamental basic need how far away are we from, let's say, the vast majority of people who are living in congregate shelters or on the street right here in Providence? Let's stay in Providence. How far away are we from realistically getting those families or those people into their own dwellings, whether it's an apartment or a tiny house or a full mansion, whatever yeah. it is? <laughs> yeah, um, that's a really good question. Um, I think on the one hand... Um, this this crisis will elevate the the um, belief that housing is health and everybody deserves a place of their own to live. Um, but I think it's also going to make it more difficult because it's great that you know evictions aren't happening right now. People's utilities aren't getting turned off, um, so that's great. People are able to stay in the apartments that they're in right now. But we have a two percent vacancy rate in this city. Two percent. They're just, unless we get very, very creative, whether it's, you know, turning some of the, um, I mean, we, we just simply need to build. And so I fear that we're, we're further away from it than we think. Our numbers aren't high. Our numbers are not significant in Rhode Island in terms of the number of units that we need. The problem is the supply isn't there to meet the numbers that we have. And so unless we can start building units more quickly, um, it's gonna. We're we're still we're several years off, at least, unfortunately. What have been some of the, I guess, from a, you know, again trying to put uh, the, the the context of someone who may be staying in in the shelter. What have been some of the concerns from their perspective as far as what on the ground to look out for? Has there been increased um, reluctance to? stay at crossroads because of fear of being in a congregate setting. Yeah, I, you know, there's, um, we haven't seen a, an increase or a decrease. Our numbers are mm. pretty steady. So I think people that already have a concern or a fear about staying in a congregate shelter with other, um, people that are strange to them, they don't know them, then, then, um, they're already out living somewhere, um, and the numbers, again, they're not that um, significant, but one person living outdoors is too many. Um, but what we're, we're, we're seeing now is anxiety is really high. They know about, um, you know, the, you know, because we're educating them, stay apart from each other, wash your hands. And, and just there's anxiety among the community uh, of people that already are struggling with challenges in their lives. And so we're trying to make sure that they're accessing whatever mental health supports are available, trying 
de-escalate um, people's anxieties the best that we can. Um, and then dealing with just very real logistics that every other family or individual is dealing with, like how do we get computers and hotspots to the children in our family shelter so they can do online learning while they're in the shelter? Um, that's been a challenge. Um, how do folks um, distance themselves when they're when they are in a shelter with other people that you know the beds are only a certain number of feet apart? So there's sort of the sort of just a psychological um, fatigue and uh, anxiety that they're dealing with because of their current situation, um, knowing that they have underlying, many of them have underlying health issues and are even more vulnerable from a health perspective, all the way to the to same things that we deal with. How am I going to get my food? And, um, you know, we, we moved, actually, we moved a family this week out of our family shelter um, which was kind of a cool way what ha- how it happened because we have to go to the apartments, we have to make sure that they're okay for a family, that the family actually likes the apartment, that they want to move into it, um, and then that the landlord is okay with the family and approves all of that. So we did that this week through video. So our housing locator went to the apartment, took a video, showed it to the family, said, do you like this apartment? They said yes. We had them fill out the information. We brought that um, and did a videotape of the family, sort of, you know, letting the family talk about, you know, their situation, showed that to the landlord. The landlord was more than happy to rent to them, and we were able to have that happen all virtually and remotely and got the family out of shelter, which is very cool. I mean, it's, so it's we're, we're, we're having to reimagine how we do our work to meet the current situation. Yeah, that's really fascinating. It's like telemedicine kind of emerging, and we're seeing... Yeah. We were talking about the front of this episode. Zoom is all of a sudden the, uh, you know, we got press conferences going on that way. So it's uh, it's just another component of how we might be able to, ex- you know, expedite certain systems going forward in the future after this. Exactly. Why can't we do that going forward? Why can't we telemedicine going forward? And so, yeah. What is your relationship, um, or I guess more so the communication pipeline between Governor Imundo, Mayor Alorza, you know, are they on the same page when you mention the coalition of those who are, are trying not to have any redundancies, et cetera, in, in this matter? Are they there with you step by step? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Both the mayor's administration and the governor have appointed a person specifically to serve on the homeless leadership group. Um, and so all of the service providers are, you know, funneling our messages and needs and ideas and support and consultation through our point person who has a direct access to um, the governor's person on their team. So when, you know, we're we're feeding in information and I don't know all the all the subgroups, but I know that when we're on our call every day um, with this team, there's someone from the mayor's office and the governor's office and if something comes up specifically for us and they have a concern or an idea for their planning for surge that um, they contact us directly and ask us for our advice on what's best practice and how do we implement this. So um, they've really been great. From your assessment, I guess, or your assessment of, of this crisis right now and, you know, how much with the time frame, with the uncertainty and so on and so forth, contributing to anxiety, is there a point where you see a potential, I don't want to say surge, but a possible breakdown in the number of available beds, 
the number of available people to, you know, whether they're in a, in a providing care or in a mental health capacity, any other service capacity, is there a point where if this crisis goes on for a certain amount of time and people find themselves unable to sustain and, you know, that's a risky thing. I mean, for example, there's a lot of independent contractors right now, musicians that are right on the periphery of homelessness and they have no income. Mm. So there could be additional need. Are you prepared for such a, a possible mini surge? Oh, man. Yeah. So it's kind of like what you've talked about is two waves or two surges. One is just a surge from this current immediate situation, either sort of um, someone blowing their top because they just can't handle the anxiety or and or we get a, a significant number of people in our community that test positive. And then there's the, the second wave, which could be because of this whole economic situation, we do end up with more individuals and families coming into homelessness. Um and, and, you know, on the first part, we're doing the best we can now to prepare as best we can with what we know. I will tell you, we sort of take turns, you know, every day someone has a little bit of a different meltdown or cries on the way home from work just because it's, it's, it, it has been overwhelming and nonstop. And you do sort of feel like this is going on for two weeks now and there's, and we don't know if there's an end in sight and it could in fact still get worse before it gets better. So, but, you know, we have a good support system, and I think the best thing we can do is just keep planning to think of as many alternatives. There's lots of great information that we're learning from other communities around the country and how they're preparing. Fortunately, Rhode Island doesn't have significant numbers of street homeless and out, or, you know, the, the numbers that other communities are, are now dealing with, um, for example, in Seattle and Los Angeles and San Francisco. Um and so that, you know, we're doing the best we can. If if we do end up with more families and individuals coming into homelessness, we have seen that before. Our numbers have been going down um, over the last few years in terms of people coming into homelessness. So if those numbers rise, I hope they don't. But if they do, I believe we are, um, you know, equipped to address them. We just, you know, again, it's a matter of resources and the ability to get people into housing. Last question. There's obviously been a, a surge of a positive surge, so to speak, of people stepping up, Rhode Islanders stepping up, corporations stepping up, individuals. What can people do if someone's listening right now and they're in Westerly and they're in wherever they are, anywhere in the state? What is the most practical thing that someone can do to aid the homeless community here in Rhode Island through this crisis? Um, I would say... One of the things that we're trying to do is coordinate all of the volunteer and or in-kind donations, um, and the Coalition for the Homeless has, um, you know, information on their website where people can go to if they want to volunteer, if they want to donate food or something, for example. And then, of course, you know, this sounds crass, but... Um, cash is king and donations. Right now, we don't know what to expect. And, and for many nonprofit social service agencies working with the homeless like Crossroads, many of our government grants are, are somewhat restricted. And so um, we're experiencing things now that we ne- couldn't have anticipated. And so having the um, general contributions to our funds to help us address where we need to without restrictions is is going to be critical for our success. Where can people make a contribution? For Crossroads, they yes. can go to our website, uh, www.crossroadsri.org. 
This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast.